Hey everyone, and welcome back to the next episode of the Manic Manor Podcast. This is Mitchie, and I wanted to start off the episode by thanking everybody who had tuned in to the latest episode and um, gave feedback. That definitely helps me to create a better podcast, especially since I'm just starting out and it's only me working on it. I greatly appreciate it. If you want to reach out to us further to give us some, you know, tips or ideas or some helpful feedback, you certainly can. Or if you want to recommend a new episode for us to review, you can contact us either via email at manicmanorpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact us also on Facebook at Manic Manor, a true crime podcast. And you can also reach out to us on Instagram at Manic Manor Podcast. So this episode we are doing this week is my god, it is one hell of a doozy. And recommended to me by Sean over at the Dark Side of Soul podcast. I don't know whether I should thank him or if I should blame him for the day drinking that I have to do because this is a very difficult to digest case and the more I read into it I was so surprised that I had never heard about this case before and even more surprised and disgusted at how the case ends up turning out but before we get into that I just want to say if you guys have not listened to the Dark Side of Soul podcast you should definitely go over there and give it a listen especially if you're into the Korean culture and wanting to learn about everything and the history that goes on, Joe and Sean do a fantastic job at it. And it's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. So you should definitely give them a listen and su- subscribe to their Patreon if you have not. And on another note, I also have a Patreon set up now for Manic Manor Podcast. If you feel so inclined to go in there and donate, you can. If not, that's perfectly fine. We do this show to give memory and everything to the victims of the case. So, without further ado, let's get into this episode. The case we're going into today is the murders of Martin Brown and Brian Howe. They were murdered back in 1968 by Mary Bell. And like I said, I am surprised that I had never heard of this case because, man, this is something that could definitely bring up the argument over nature versus nurture when it comes to killers, and it can also bring up the argument of how messed up the judicial system can be no matter where it is in the world. So, looking into this and getting started, we'll probably have to start with the perpetrator herself, Mary Flora Bell. Now, Mary Bell was born May 26, 1957 in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, England, Uh, Her parents were Elizabeth McCricket and William Bell, and they were not the best parents. You definitely were not getting the nuclear family vibes from these people. Her father was a petty criminal. He would pass off Mary to anybody that would be willing to watch her. He really just didn't seem to give two shits in hell about what was going on with his child. Her mother was a prostitute, and I mean, do what you gotta do, girl, to make your money, but... Your children need to come first in your life, and this was not the case for Mary's mother. It was so bad that it looks like her mother was actually selling Mary off to clients, so on top of being just an all-around shitty parent, here you are selling your child off for whatever fucking reason you see fit. I mean, just, my god. 
So, I mean, it's safe to say that with no stability in the house and the violence and the aggression that was going on, Mary didn't stand a chance. Now, you can definitely feel bad for the situation, but when you figure out what Mary did to Martin and Brian, I don't think you're going to feel any kind of sympathy for her for the rest of her life, because I know I don't. Um... I mean, all this aggression that she was like she was witnessing at home, it caused her to exhibit signs of rage. And this was being seen as early as her elementary school years, like the classic sign of psychopathic tortures. She would mess with animals, like beat on them, strangle them, whatever. Definitely should be the first sign that this child needed help. And of course she was being ignored. And it looks like her mother even tried to kill her at one point and oh my god tried to drop her from windows tried overdosing her and everything I mean lady I understand that this was in the 50s and this was a different time but my god why why the hell are you keeping your child when you're trying to kill her I, I, I can't fathom it I'm sure there would have been plenty other people that would have been more than willing to raise this child, and she probably would have turned out different if you ask me. So, Mary was a liar, compulsive liar, and a complete bully at school because, I mean, when you're in a household where you're being bullied yourself, it seems like a lot of those kids tend to try to seek some sort of control because they have no control over anything else in their lives, so... She took out any kind of pain and aggression that she had on innocent kids at school. Now, the majority of these children were either afraid of her, hated her, or both. But there was one child that absolutely worshipped the ground that Mary walked on. And this child was Norma Joyce Bell, of no relation. And Norma wasn't considered a very bright child. In fact, nowadays she probably would have been considered a child that would have been like in IEP classes in school and such. So, Mary just um, took quite advantage of this. The fact that Norma just idolized her and followed her around, Mary definitely took advantage of it. And before we get into these gruesome murders... There was an initial assault that happened before the murders of Martin and Brian. So, this is going to be a very big escalade. I'm talking like boom, boom, boom. All these events just happening one after another. So we start out May 11th, 1968. A three-year-old boy is discovered. He's wandering around and bleeding profusely from his head around the area of St. Margaret's Road in Scottswood. And it looks like the child later informed police that he had been playing with Mary and Norma Bell on top of an air raid shelter. Now, I don't understand why kids are going to want to play on top of air raid shelters, but like I said, this was a different time. This was a time when kids could literally just go out in the street and play and parents could trust them to come home safe. But... This doesn't seem like a very good case. So, while they were playing on this air raid shelter, it said that one of the girls, either Mary or Norma, pushed this child 
off the shelter and he fell seven feet from the roof to the ground. I don't understand how that didn't kill him or at least give him like a major broken bone or concussion, but he just had a severe laceration to his head, which it, I mean, that's bad enough. But the same evening, um, the parents contacted to complain that both Mary and um, Norma had a had been doing had been doing so had been playing with him and pushed him off. But there were also other parents that had called in, and there were three girls that were playing in a sandpit. Mary and Norma tried to strangle them. So they bring in Mary and Norma to an interview and try to find out what had happened. Of course, Mary, being a compulsive liar, made up a story how they weren't the ones to push him off and everything, and, oh no, they didn't strangle these girls, but, of course, they did, but because these were just children, the police simply gave them a warning and no further action was taken. Now, had the police stepped in at that time and reprimanded her properly, which I don't know how England did back in the 50s and the 60s and everything with um, laws especially pertaining to children. But if they had stepped in at this point in time, they definitely could have stopped what was coming. And this is where we get into the murders of Martin and Brian. May 25th or 26th, depending on where you read, a lot of articles I read said that it was actually May 26th of 1968. <clears throat> Martin Brown was found laying on his back in an abandoned home with his arms outstretched and a little bit of foam at his mouth. Um, when they found his body, they weren't able to tell exactly what his cause of death was because it didn't look like he had any, you know, physical bruises or anything on his body. But they did happen to find a pill bottle laying not too far from him, so they were quick to assume that from this pill bottle he had accidentally overdosed. The reality of it was Mary Bell had strangled him. Now she admitted to this that she was the one to do this crime, that um, she strangled him, but because she was a child, her force wasn't strong enough to leave any actual bruising on Martin's body, so that's why they couldn't locate anything. Now, also at the scene, Mary and Norma Bell were there just kind of standing off in the corner of the room, just chilling about, watching these police officers try to revive a child that was deceased. I mean, I don't know of any other kid that's going to sit there and watch that, even though kids naturally have curious tendencies. I really don't think that a kid's going to just stand there and watch something like this. So in turn, the police, they notice this strange behavior, they're trying to shoo her out, and of course, um, trying to figure out why the hell these kids were in this abandoned house anyway. Well, according to Mary, she was there with Norma because two younger boys were looking for their friends, and the younger boys happened to come across this deceased body of the four-year-old Martin Brown. So after these girls were shooed away, my lord, Mary goes to the house of Martin's aunt, knocks on the door, 
and just casually says to the aunt, Hey, one of your sister's kids has had an accident. We think it may be Martin, but we're not sure. There's quite a bit of blood. And need I remind you, they didn't find anything on Martin's body because he had been strangled. Mary went up to this woman's house and said, Hey, your nephew's got a lot of blood on him. He's This is possibly your nephew. We're not sure, though. And just walks off. And, my God, th this is some straight-up children of the corn type shit. Uh, whew, whew, mercy. Whew. Excuse me, as, as a parent myself, it's... I feel a lot of emotions brewing in me every time that I think about this or talk about it. But, continuing on... A few days after the murder, Mary goes to the Brown residence, so Martin's mother, and says, Hey, can I see Martin? And, you know, that's painful enough that the mother has to sit there and live with and mourn the fact that her baby, not just, not just a child, no, her four-year-old baby, is gone. But now you've got this child walking up saying that she wants to see the baby wants to see her child and you have to explain no you can't see him he's passed away he's dead and mary's response is i know he's dead i just wanted to see him in his coffin and i, I i'm sorry what what the actual fuck i i don't i don't even have words like I would just be sitting there with my eyes bugging out of my head and I I couldn't comprehend that and not even the next day so this happens like May 25th May 26th so it's either on the same day or the very <laughs> next day Norma Bell's father catches Mary trying to choke his daughter trying to choke her out and this is the friend that absolutely idolized Mary. And here she is trying to choke her out. Like, this this child's got some major issues. And if therapy had been a, a freaking option back then, she needed to be enrolled in therapy straight up. But, given the time frame, it's... I wouldn't say it's understandable why that wasn't an option. But it just... Mental health was not looked upon as much as it's looked upon now. So Norma Bell's father goes up to Mary, slaps her, and throws her out. Later that evening, a nursery is broken into, vandalized, cleaning supplies thrown everywhere, uh, school supplies, paint splattered all over the place, and some nasty notes written bragging about the murder of Martin Brown dropping um, f-bombs and whatnot um, making a bunch of homophobic slurs which I'm not sure that these children really knew what the f slur was at that point but they were just showing out and bragging and I guess it was a ploy for attention or something but that went unheard because the police decided to chalk that up as nothing more than a, than a prank and I'm sorry, I don't see how you can chalk up vandalization 
and bragging about the murder of a four-year-old as a prank. If you want to look at that as a prank, then you probably need to reevaluate your life. I'm sorry. That's just me. About, um, roughly about a month later, we're into July. July 31st, 1968. Three-year-old Brian Howe had been last seen by his parents out in the street playing with one of his siblings, the family dog. And unfortunately, Mary and Norma Bell. He never came back that night and relatives were worried out of their minds because this is this is just a toddler. He was supposed to be out playing with his siblings in one of the safest, most innocent things ever. But he didn't turn back home and so they're in a panic. They start a search party. They're looking all over the place. And it turns out they can't find anything. It's a fruitless endeavor. However, later that evening, around 11, 10 p.m., oh, oh, Lord, they discover the body of three-year-old Brian Howe, strangled to death, dumped off in between two concrete blocks upon... The Tin Lizzie. Now, for those who w don't know what the Tin Lizzie is, back in England around the 50s and the 60s, it was, these were just abandoned houses that the children would play in because this was during a time of, like, revitalization for the cities and everything. So these houses were being abandoned and they were building stuff on top of it. And this was just one of those confounds that they were still abandoned and no work had been done yet. Now, the authorities said that there was a deliberate but feeble attempt to conceal his body. I mean, it had been covered with clumps of grass and everything. Cy cyanosis at this point had set in. His lips were turning blue. Um, there were multiple bruises and scratches all over this child's body. And an attempt was made to carve the letter M into his body and they found a pair of broken scissors discarded by this child's feet and as well as um, his penis had been mutilated as I, I'm sorry it's just so heartbreaking when you sit there and you think about this because it's just a child just a little baby and as a parent myself I can't imagine being the family member and coming across that site. I don't want to have to imagine that. So for this family to have to endure that is... Oh my lord. So, the autopsy that they performed on Brian revealed he had been strangled and his nose had been pinched closed. So he had no oxygen whatsoever going in. And there were also, also, excuse me, tried to combine multiple and also. There were also multiple puncture wounds on his thighs and legs that had occurred before death. So these, I don't even know if you can call her a child. Because this is not something that a child does to another child. Sat there and tortured this little baby before taking the life out from him. So, upon the discovery of Brian's body, 
the police did a massive manhunt trying to figure out who this killer could be. The autopsy was showing that this had to be a child because of the amount of strength that was in it. There wasn't enough for it to be considered like a grown adult doing it. So the police started questioning the children. They eventually came to Mary and Norma because they were the last ones seen with Brian. Now Mary, being the compulsive liar that she is, tries to concoct this story saying she saw this child, she saw this boy with a pair of bent and broken scissors. Uh, he was playing with Brian, he was beating him and everything, but the sheer fact that she was able to give such a description of the scissors, the same scissors that was found laying beside the body of this child, that was enough for them to know that she was the killer. And only the police knew about these broken scissors at this point. It wasn't on the news or anything. So the local boy that she named also, they were able to hunt him down very quickly and found that he was nowhere near the area. So she was just willing to throw somebody else under the bus at this point. It's also said when they did the funeral for Brian and they were taking his casket out that... Mary was sitting there, well not sitting there, she was standing there watching it and just laughing. And I don't see how you could laugh and smile at the at the coffin of a child. So the detective that was on the case said he knew right then and there that he had to get her and bring her in because if they didn't, sure as hell she would have another victim. So that's what they did. Later that day, around 8pm, her and Norma both were formally charged with the murder of Brian Howe. <clears throat> now shortly after they were charged, they underwent psychiatric evaluations. They showed that Norma was intellectually delayed and was a easily influenced character who was pretty much just a pawn and everything because she had no idea what was going on. Now, Mary, they found, was a very cunning character with a lot of mood swings. And from this examination, there were four psychiatrists that had examined her. And they didn't see for her they didn't see or believe that she suffered from any kind of mental disorder, but suffered from psychopathic personality disorder. So Around uh, December 5th, 1968, both girls were tried for the murders of Martin Brown and Brian Howe. Now, both pled not guilty to the charge, but eventually Norma was acquitted because of her mental capacity and how she was not able to understand what was going on. But, by the end of the trial, they had convicted Mary on two counts of the manslaughter of both of the boys. On the and I'm seeing where they said it was on the grounds of diminished responsibility. And I don't know, maybe it was because she was a kid at this point, but either way, she was convicted of manslaughter. Now, 
The judge on here that gave the passing sentence labeled Mary as a dangerous individual and a very grave risk to other children, and she must be kept away at all all places possible. She was sentenced to be detained indefinitely in prison. And let this sink in here when I say she was supposed to be indefinitely in prison because she posed a great risk to everyone around her. Now in prison, she was originally sentenced to go to, let's see, Red Bank, Red Bank Secure Unit Prison in St. Helens, Lancashire. But for some reason, they decided that they were going to transfer her to um, Moorcourt Open Prison in Stoke-on-Trent, and that was in Staffordshire. And she uh, she escaped in 1977. She escaped, apparently with the help of two guys who ended up selling the story to the tabloids because they said she, quote-unquote, wanted to get pregnant and lose her virginity. This is where I have to say, what the fuck to the judicial system. I understand that this is over in England and this was in the 70s at this point and it's a whole different ballpark now than what it was back then. And maybe it's just me living in the States not understanding. How the hell do you look at something where it's shown, hey, this person is a great threat. You should not let them anywhere near people. You should keep them in prison indefinitely. And you take her from what I'm assuming is a maximum security prison and putting them in what is called an open prison. Just my thought, but that was a big screw up on that point. Even bigger screw up on their point from what I believe. In 1980, she was released at the age of 23 after only serving 12 years for the murders of two young boys that would never get to grow up, never get to graduate high school or go to uni. She ripped that all away and not only took their lives, but the lives of their family members. I don't understand how she got to get out like that. And then the officers that were releasing her stating that they believed she would no longer be a threat to society. I'm sorry, what? And then not only that, she got to have anonymity. Nobody got to know who she was when she was released. And then she had a daughter on top of that. And I know we all have a right to our bodily autonomy. It's, you know, it needs to be our body choice, your body, your choice, my body, my choice. This, though, this is a very gray area. This is not a black and white case. She murdered children. You let her out early, even though she was supposed to be in prison indefinitely. And you let her have a child. That, I, 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 I can't wrap my brain around. Now, eventually, their cover did get blown, both Mary and her daughter. Um, 
it was blown in 1998, it looks like, and Mary was forced to flee the house that she left in with bed sheets over her head, which, lady, if you were willing to commit a crime like you did, and you were viewed as someone who was cunning and clearly understanding of what you were doing, I, I, I don't believe that you deserve that anonymity. Now, on May 21st, 2003, Belle won a case with the High Court, and her and her daughter get to keep their anonymity for the rest of their lives, which I think I'm not being hateful towards the daughter of Mary Bell because the daughter had no idea what went on. Like, even it was hidden from her daughter about the crimes that Mary did. But Mary herself, why in the hell does she get to have so much leniency even if she was a child when she committed these crimes? I can't. I can't understand it. It's, I've said that a lot, but I really cannot understand it. And not only that, but she got to create a book. And I don't even want to say the name of the book because I don't want to give any, you know, any insight or any more notoriety to it. But she got to make money off of this book. And the most heartbreaking thing that I saw from all of my research that I did was the mother of Martin Brown. When she was on her deathbed, she knew that she was not going to win her battle with cancer, but she wasn't worried because she knew that she was going to get to meet her son again, and that had me in tears. And it <laughs> the, the tears kept coming down and getting worse when they talked about, you know, Mary having this book go out and her getting to be released early and how it was just so painful for Martin's mother to have to go through life and know this. And I, I mean, I completely agree that it's very unfair that Mary gets to live her life not only as a free woman, but in secret. Meanwhile, these families have to live with this detrimental thing for the rest of their lives, knowing that their son, their brother, was taken from them in the most cruel way. So, that is the story of the murders of Martin Brown and Brian Hull. How? Excuse me. If you like this episode, please feel free to like, comment, um, give us a subscribe on Patreon if you feel so inclined to. That's Manic Manor Podcast. You can also email us with any ideas for another episode at manicmanorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Instagram at Manic Manor Podcast or Facebook at Manic Manor, a true crime podcast. Until next week, y'all, stay safe.